From the Financial Times in New York, I'm Amy Keene, and this is FT News. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court opened the door for states to start charging e-commerce companies sales tax. The FT's Jessica Dye has read through the ruling and is on the line with me now to break it down. Jessica, let's start with the case itself and how it made its way to the Supreme Court. Well, if you go back to 1992, the Supreme Court had a ruling in a case called Quill. The question came to the Supreme Court, can you charge online retailers a sales tax? And what the Supreme Court held at that time in Quill was that you had to have a physical presence in the state, whether that meant employees or real estate, in order to give the state the authority to collect that tax. So that's been on the books for quite a while. But as you know, since 1992, the commerce landscape has changed pretty dramatically with the rise of Amazon, obviously. And you know, virtually every large company has online sales now, and even smaller ones find a way to sell online in order to reach a bigger audience. So as that changed, states kind of looked at this and they thought, we're missing out on a lot of sales tax that we were once able to collect. People used to just go down to the store and buy something. That put a little money in the state's pocket. But when you're going to Wayfair, the furniture retailer, to buy it there, then the state is missing out on its slice of the pie. States didn't like that. And in 2015, Justice Anthony Kennedy from the Supreme Court wrote a concurring opinion in a different case. He suggested that Quill may be irrelevant. It may be outdated. And so as a result of that, South Dakota's legislature decided to pass a law calling for a sales tax on a company that does online sales in its state. You had to be relatively major. You had to do about $100,000 in transactions a year or at least, you know, 200 transactions with customers in that state. But it sort of, you know, threw down the gauntlet. South Dakota, like some other states, doesn't collect a state income tax. And so it's heavily reliant on the sales tax to do things like build its roads and keep its schools open. So this law was passed and the state went ahead and preemptively sued Wayfair and a couple of other large retailers. They went to court in in South Dakota and the court ruled for the retailers because the court said, look, our hands are tied by Quill. You don't have a physical presence. We can't do anything here. You don't have to pay. That went up to South Dakota Supreme Court, which agreed. So then that went, you know, on a fast track straight to the Supreme Court, which led to last week's ruling. So the precedent was set by this 1992 case, but there's just been such an exponential growth in online retail since then, even just in the last few years. So opinions on this particular concept of whether states could charge e-commerce companies sales tax or not really started to change. So can you walk us through the actual ruling on what was decided last week? What the majority said, and it was a 5-4 decision, was that what Quill held in 1992 is, is simply no longer relevant to today's commerce landscape. And so we need to change it. And so the Supreme Court generally has a preference for leaving the rulings that's already decided in place. But in this case, you know, it decided that the time has moved on. And so we should update our thinking on this to reflect that. And so what they ended up saying was physical presence is no longer the deciding element here. What we should look at instead is whether or not this retailer has a substantial nexus to that state. That's a fairly vague term. And I think the Supreme Court did that on purpose. They don't want to get into the business of saying, okay, states, we're going to tell you how to collect your taxes now, but they do want to give them the discretion to say, we're losing out on money because even though Wayfair sells, you know, so much furniture in our state, we can't get any part of that. 
Now, if you look at the dissent, which was written by Chief Justice Roberts and joined by a couple of the, I think they would be seen as the more liberal members of the court, they said, this may not be our place. This might be a better one for Congress to decide, to pass laws, to make this clear. And also, we don't want to unilaterally cut out a element that has made online retail such a success. And I think that, generally speaking, the people who've looked at this decision since it came out tend to agree that what the Supreme Court is not necessarily teeing up is if one person in your state goes and orders one thing from a tiny mom and pop online store, you know, jessicasartsandcrafts.com, you know, and I, I knit a pair of mittens and I sell that to you in South Dakota. I don't think they envision it as something that states would want to pass these laws that would subject any sort of online transaction to sales tax, which is why when you look at South Dakota's law, which sets those thresholds in place, so you're really only intending to capture sort of the bigger players, then I think that's the sort of sales tax that the Supreme Court has in mind. But yeah, that's something that states are going to have to figure out. It's one of those decisions that even though it happened at the federal Supreme Court, it's something that is going to be up to each state to individually decide. Some of them do already have laws on the books about online sales tax and how to collect that. Now, I would imagine if you were in a state legislature, you want to go now and move as quickly as possible to decide how are we going to capture the most amount of revenue we can without having any of these adverse, unforeseen consequences. And Jessica, the response from some of these e-commerce companies was not particularly positive. Shares in at least Wayfair, the home goods company that you've mentioned, as well as Overstock.com, dipped in trading on Thursday. What are these companies saying? Well, Wayfair and Overstock.com, which were two of the companies who were originally sued, both came out with statements essentially saying, you know, this isn't the end of the world. I think that, you know, even though Wayfair and Overstock.com aren't the size of, say, an Amazon, they're still big enough that they may be able to reasonably manage these extra costs on their business. Amazon is sort of an outlier. It's seen the writing on the wall for a while. On its own products that it sells, it's already been collecting sales tax in the vast majority of states. Amazon knew they weren't going to be able to escape the sales tax forever. They're already on board. What I think the impact is being seen most sharply and or will be over over the next few months as states start to put these laws into effect will be on the small companies. That's where it's going to make more of a difference in their margins. And it's going to make more of a difference in terms of compliance costs, because every state has its own state sales tax. States may choose to tax one thing differently than another thing. So, you know, Jessica's Arts and Crafts is now going to have to go and get a tax lawyer to say, okay, if I sell mittens in Texas, that may be taxed differently than if I sell them in Minnesota. Those sort of costs can really add up if you're a relatively small company, whereas if you're a bigger one, like a Wayfair and Overstock, you know, you've already got some lawyers in-house. It may be a headache, but it won't necessarily be the end of the world. But it is interesting that some of these big companies have, in their statements, also asked Congress to take this up, to give them a final ruling to say, you know, here's where we as a country want to prioritize how online retailers are taxed in states. And so an interesting point to watch will be whether or not Congress takes those appeals seriously, and if so, what sort of action they decide to take in order to clarify that and and give companies a little more certainty about what sort of transaction taxes they may face. Sounds like next move to Congress. Thanks for combing through the ruling and breaking it down for us, Jessica. Of course, my pleasure. Thanks very much. Hello. 
We're rethinking our podcast strategy here at the Financial Times, and we'd love to hear your views. We're asking listeners to rate our podcasts and to tell us what you like and don't like about our shows. To contribute to our survey, follow the link in our show notes or go to ft.com forward slash podcast feedback to enter our prize draw to win £500 or the equivalent in dollars. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.